You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employer's respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. All-inclusive vacations make life easy with endless eats, bottomless drinks, and never-ending fun. So booking an all-inclusive vacation should be easy too, right? That's where Apple Vacations comes in. Book your all-inclusive getaway with Apple Vacations and receive exclusive perks at select resorts. You'll find the best deals to Hyatt, Zalara, Riviera Maya in Mexico and enjoy a selection of exclusive non-stop vacation flights. Turn on easy mode at applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. Visit applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. Good morning, peeps, and welcome to Woke App Daily with me, your girl, Danielle Moody, recording once again from the Brooklyn Bunker. Folks, I'm very excited to bring this episode to you today on one of the biggest crises, as if there aren't 17,000 of them happening at the same time, but the horrific crisis that is affecting over 45 million Americans, and that is the student debt crisis right? The fact that over 45 million Americans are in 1.8, a collective $1.8 trillion worth of debt. You've heard from progressives asking for debt relief. You've heard the Biden administration once again hit pause on paybacks on student loans, right? And on student loan interest in the wake of COVID-19. But this is something that once again, in a couple of months back in May, will they hit pause again? Because what seems to be happening is a consistency in kicking the can down the road instead of dealing with the student loan debt crisis. You should not, right? We should not be in debt in order to get an education, which as one of my guests, we have two today, but one of them first up, Dr. Elizabeth Tandy Shermer, who is the author of Indentured Students, How Government Guaranteed Loans Left Generations Drowning in College Debt, how Dr. Shermer will talk about the ways in which essentially this has looked like entrapment for low-income students, students of color, and women. When we look at the demographic breakdown of who those over 45 million are, it is those students, right? So what is this administration doing? Coming behind Dr. Shermer will be Dr. John Oberg, who you may have heard of. He is a whistleblower from the Department of Education and a political scientist who recognized that the lenders were cheating, were cheating students, 
looking for loans, right? We're cheating the Department of Education in terms of the amount of money that they were going to be giving back to them. The Department of Education was complicit in what the lenders were doing and then decided to turn the money that they supposedly owed, right, from the that the lenders owed to the Department of Education into additional loans to place the burden on students as opposed to the lenders. And what Dr. John Oberg will tell us is that the Department of Education is and was complicit in this action, right? So not only are we kicking student loan relief, student debt down the road, but we're also continuing the vicious cycle of turning these students, as Dr. Shermer says, into indentured servants, right? So what is this administration gonna do and what are the ideas that both Dr. Shermer and Dr. Erberg will offer to us as ways out of this crisis? Folks, that is coming up next. Folks, I am very excited to welcome to Woke AF Daily for the very first time, Dr. Elizabeth Tandy Shermer, who is the author of Indentured Students, How Government Guaranteed Loans Left Generations Drowning in College Debt. And by generations, we're talking about 45 million Americans, over 45 million Americans are affected by the student loan debt crisis, which many have referred to as being predatory, um, as it is women and people of color who are the ones that are most disadvantaged by this loan system and therefore caught in this, um, and I love that I love the title of your book, caught in this indentured uh, servitude um, once they finish school. So Dr. Shermer, let, let's just start off with, you know, Tell us big picture. How did we get here? How how did we oh. get into a space where 1.8 trillion trillion dollars of student loan debt is just hanging over the heads of over 45 million Americans? It's a story of the worst of intentions. And I know I, the, because the classic story is like the best of intentions and was just so well thought and it's only recently, but actually we've been having a problem with college affordability for more than a century. And I think the real issue is that when I say the, the worst of intentions, it was policymakers refusing to actually invest in the public goods and public needs that we need, like colleges and universities, which provide the research that we need for vaccines, also the social science research about how to, for example, roll them out, and then also help fund the humanities, which kept us sane and gave us the critical reading and thinking skills to understand how to get out of this crisis. And we need an educated citizenry. We mm. need that. But what we're going to do is instead of actually investing in these institutions, stop them from competing for tuition revenue, donor revenue, all these other kinds of things, we are going to create a really terrible financial product. Because let's just think this through. I am going to give you a loan for something that I can't repossess and sell to someone else. That's a, what a terrible idea. And even if I could, you could never then actually compete for the job in order to get the money to ever pay me back. And by the way, your only collateral for being for getting this loan is being admitted to a college and university that needs your tuition revenue. So what a shitty idea. And it was actually modeled on one of the most 
on, on, on a very now infamous federal program, the federal mortgage program, which we mm -hmm. now know has disproportionately um, widened racial and gender wealth gaps, period, full stop. And that's exactly what they did in the 60s. I know what we'll do. Let's use that federal mortgage program and we'll model it for something that is nothing like a mortgage, a student loan. You know, one of the things that just deeply troubles me, right, about this, about this entire system. And, it, and you know, and it is, it is criminal to me, right? It's criminal to tell people, especially those that are low income, that in order for you to succeed in this capitalist, you know, factory that we have created, that you need to go to college, right? I, I can remember from when I was in elementary school that was beat into everyone's head, right? In my, you know, uh, middle income, uh, suburban school district, go to college, go to college, go to college. No one ever talked about what the burden was going to be after you left college. No one ever talked about the fact that, um, you know, folks weren't retiring at the rates that they were retiring at, that you were your first job out of college in many places wasn't even going to cover, right? The, the, the loan that you took out, but we made it impossible right? For you to continue on with just a high school education in a majority of places. So we made it like a necessity to go to college, but didn't create a system that would allow people to do that without tying a noose around their necks. You're totally right. And it was this faith that, you know what, if you just go to college, you'll be able to compete for the well-paying work. That was the whole idea of social mobility, never actually tackling the problems within the labor market. The reason that women, the reason that women and people of color have a harder time dealing with this is one, the financial aid officers, despite what y'all might've heard about um, uh, affirmative action, they don't tend to get the, um, they don't tend to get the financial aid to stop them from borrowing. More importantly, when they're actually out on the labor market, they are still paid pennies on the dollar to white men, period, mm -hmm. full stop. And then in the case of women, women, women are the ones who are more likely to be constantly moving in and out of the labor market to provide unpaid care. And Come when on. you pause those loans, mm -hmm. this is what's unique about this moratorium um, period right now. When you pause those loans, sorry for the language, the fucking interest is still accruing for women who are doing the care that we need them to do for both elderly relatives, for children. And we're going to penalize them by having more, by, by just indebting them further. And I have to say, I'm so glad that you appreciated the title indentured students because I got it. I got, I used to get a lot of pushback from it, but I always pointed out, but that's how people talk about it. They yeah. talk about being indentured. And when we realize the racial and gender aspects built into this program from the beginning, mm -hmm. why are we not saying that? Why are we not talking about that and really listening to the folks who are feeling the biggest burdens? Because it is a factor of race and it's a factor of gender, period. You know, and the reason why we don't talk about it is for those very two reasons, right? Because it is a factor of gender and it's a factor of race. And that we, like to, pretend, we like to pretend in this country that those things are accidental, right? Like, oh, that, you know, that that they're not purposefully paving the road to hell for those particular communities who are unable to come out of pocket, right? To pay for tuitions that are $50,000, $60,000 a year 
right? Yep. Um, because we also then, we, we've created an entire predatory system. So one, for people who cannot afford those $50,000, uh, price tags for university, then we created a for-profit model, right? A predatory uh, college where you can go and get your certificate for a quarter of that, but then that certificate is, is not real, right? Like no one's accepting it. Right. It's like it's like a series of Trump universities that we've created because we've created a system that doesn't allow people to really access. Right. The educations that they need without all of these strings being attached. Absolutely. And the one thing I'm going to say here is that I think for me and this is it's again, my, my brilliant friend, Kat Ramirez, who teaches at University of California, Santa Cruz, she has always said is that we in higher education in the nonprofit sectors are are feeling what is happening in the K through 12 schools. We are being um, demanded to do more with less. And so, yeah, I am getting right now in the middle of a, like a, a whipshaw pivot to going virtual. But to do that responsibly, to actually connect with people, to make it accessible and meaningful, means completely overhauling everything to actually meet the reality of students where they are, where the majority of students are working more than part-time. It's bullshit to think that 25 hours a week is part-time. That's that's more than 40 hours a week. And that's the, the reality of it. And so we are setting both up these basic public goods. We have turned them into private luxuries. And then those that are not the wealthy ones that can actually provide it, we are actually then damning them for not providing more with less. Why is it? Why is it that so many colleges and universities now have to have food banks. They are on the on the front lines of a food mm -mm. and housing insecurity because we have so disinvested in the basic needs of the people of this country, all of the people of this country. I had no idea. Tell me more about these food banks and why schools have to have them. I have not heard this. This is news to oh me. Oh my God. Well, it's, it's food and housing insecurity, period, full stop. And so I am 99% sure that this is still correct, that the that University of California campuses, each one has a food bank. Here in the city of Chicago, um, the there is a, I believe what they're doing now with the city colleges is a food truck coming in for a food bank it's not a food truck is like you know millennials having tacos it is literally a pantry a food pantry a mobile one coming to these city colleges because on the front lines are these college universities because so many people i'm thinking about what you said about what you were told about you have to go to college you have to go to college mm -hmm. so many people are trying because it's so tied to um getting a good job but then there's so much inequality in this country that is worsening just exacerbated by the pandemic. And if you're trying to do better and your first avenue is college, then we're meeting, colleges are meeting at the front lines, the food and housing insecurity. At George Mason University, um, a university near where I grew up, they have many students. I, I, that is where my master's cars. degree is from. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> Nova so represent. I'm yeah, that's so I'm familiar. <laughs> yeah. But no, but we, that is, it is, it is a, it is a, it is, a, it is a serious issue that we're seeing actually across the country. And this is the incredible work of um, Temple's Hope Center, which did the first big um, study to show that a third of American college um, and university students, and this, by the way, is pre-pandemic, um, mm -hmm, had mm -hmm. food and housing insecurity, had basic food and housing insecurity. And I think that that's what we really need to talk about is that we're meeting not just young people, but people going back at different points in their lives. In fact, I just got an email from a person who's returning after 12 years, um, trying to restart her graduate program, that this is um, 
college universities, just like K through 12 schools are on the front lines. In the case of here in the city of Chicago, um, your listeners might know that we're having a big standoff right now um, about going back safely. Yep. But even yep. before that, CPS schools were actually open during the pandemic, not for construction, but actually I would walk by them. There's a couple in my neighborhood um, to deliver meals. Yep. So we have decided to put schools on the front lines of dealing with food insecurity. I'm an educator. I, I'm don't have the training to do that. And I have tried to educate myself on the issue and learn about the resources available, but we're asking colleges, universities, K through 12 schools to do more with less and to be on the front lines of crises before we even had this pandemic. Let me switch gears for a moment to talk about this current administration and what it was that they said that they were going to do with regard to the student loan uh, debt crisis. And what we have seen, right, by virtue of the pandemic, is the can being kicked down the road. We'll just continue to pause, right? We'll continue to press pause, but we won't try and actually stop or fix the problem. Um, with, you know, you we'll pause you paying back, but like you said, the interest is still occurring. It's still accruing, Oh, no, no. The interest right? right now is not accruing. The interest is okay, not accruing the interest, right now. That's okay. what's, that is what's really important right now that's happening is this is historic because they 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 hit pause on the interest as well for sure but and that's but, but not everyone qualifies for that that's the thing there's a there's some federal loans that don't qualify for this pause and then the private so here, loans don't but so i mean my my feeling is you know why if this is a bipartisan issue, and let me just pretend right now that we have an actual two-party system. Let's just pretend <laughs> that Republicans care, um, knowing that they don't. But there have been bipartisan solutions that have been put together, right, to deal with this crisis, and yet nothing has happened. My feeling, because I'm a cynic but also a realist, is the fact that, oh, it's because of who it's affecting, the same reason why we wanted to open up, you know, the economies of, of various states at the height of the, the first wave of the pandemic, because it was only people of color and women that were that were being affected. It wasn't anybody else. So, you know, go with God. Why is this stuck? Why are we stuck here knowing that this is a major, major problem and that is going to have legs that affect all, all industries, right? All areas of our lives. Well, so the first thing is like, I do actually think the people in power, many of them do not have to borrow. If 70% of, of, of students now need to borrow and families need to borrow, there is that top 30%. And I think from my perspective, as someone who was trying to get this book published, it was interesting to me that a lot of the publishers, they didn't ever have to borrow. Right. And so that's who's at the helm. It's a pipeline thing. But then once wow. I got into once I got into the folks who are actually um, helping me with um, like actually getting the book ready, the editors and things like that, they all had to borrow. And I think it's a really interesting thing about who the gatekeepers at the top actually are. But I think the other thing I think that's really important is that I completely agree with you. What's really I always talk about this, um, the indentured students book, which is everyone wanted a book about a bunch of big bad bankers. Well, actually, the banking industry actually initially fought the federal loan program. They didn't want it. They didn't want besides the fact that it's a terrible investment, they didn't want more expansion of federal power. And it was a bipartisan doubling down on creative financing as opposed to investing in the American people in the 1960s. We're just going to give them another financial product. We didn't give them housing in the 30s. 
we're going to give them a financial product. We didn't give them, we actually didn't give them schooling in the 60s. We're going to give them a financial product um, to creatively pay for it. And I think for me is that when you actually look at it is we are dealing with a 21st century democracy with real ideas about, you know, majority rule and things like that based on an 18th century constitution that has been so Come contorted. On. And so I, to me, to be honest, if I could only have one thing, if I, if like I had a magical fairy and I could have one thing, I would actually start to get to, because the student debt crisis is just an example of many crises of Americans mm-hmm. having to pay out of pocket for basic goods. I would start with voting rights. And I mean, actually beyond what's going on right now and they're, they're fighting about in the House and the Senate. I would, why is it that we only have 435 representatives in Congress? That was set in the late 20s. You know, the country's a lot bigger right now. It's just a lot bigger right now. We do not have real representation. Real representation dealing with this, the, the undemocratic aspects baked into a constitution written more than 200 years ago, we are a 21st century democracy. That isn't good enough anymore. And if we want to start with this crisis and everything else that's intertwined with it, like the healthcare crisis, all these things, it's got to start actually with having a really functioning democracy. You know, everything to, in, in in everything needs to start with the foundation of a functional and actually representative democracy, right? Which if we're honest with ourselves, to your point, we've actually never had, right? Yes, and particularly, sorry. Particularly, <laughs> and, you know, particularly somebody like myself who is at the intersection of multiple marginalized communities as a black woman, as a queer woman, you know, as a, as a child of immigrants, like there is just, there, there has never been equity in that way, but we also have to be honest about the fact that it was set up like that, right? Like it is, it is succeeding in who it was choosing to keep out, right? Because you need, in order to have a functional capitalist society, somebody needs to be on the bottom. Right. Like that's that's how this you want to talk about, like the actual pyramid scheme, like it's capitalism. Right. And who is on the bottom and who and why you need to stay there in order to aid those at the top. Please go ahead. And what I have to be what I like, what I think is really important to remember when we talk about the origins of all this, the real origins of the guaranteed student loan program hidden and seemingly hidden in that like mid 1960s, a celebrated higher education act. It's called the guaranteed student loan program. But the guarantee was not for the students that they were not that they would get admitted, not that they would actually finish. The guarantee was not for the schools that they would actually be able to expand and meet public demand and new expectations for all their many uses. The guarantee was that bankers would be repaid on one of the worst yep. financial products you could ever come with. That's what it always comes down to. And that was built into that was modeled off of the guarantee in the 30s for housing. The guarantee for the federal mortgage program was that bankers would be repaid for giving out mortgages. And by the way, we were going to construct this entire program to make it extremely hard for people of color and women to actually get a mortgage. There we go. I mean, you know, I got to tell you, and I, and I say this all the time on Woke AF, It's like the more that I know, the angrier I become. And if you know me, then you know that there is really just no bottom to my rage. But it it is so, what pisses me off the most is that these dots are not connected, right? What pisses me off the most is that we continue to look for Band-Aid fixes for systemic problems that were created on purpose, right? And I, yes. And I also think too, 
Yes, I'm tired of band-aids. Um, you're absolutely right. That's why I was like, you want to go for the jugular? Let's go to voting. Let's go to voting and do that. But then also, I think we have to look at the language because they're pretty friggin' honest in this. The guaranteed student loan program. I mean, it was tricky who actually is getting this guaranteed. But I also, the one I don't like right now is the public sector loan forgiveness. No one need, has done anything that needs to be forgiven. No person in this country who has student debt needs to be forgiven for the debt that they incurred, for the education that we need them to have as a 21st century democracy, right? Not just for our workforce, but just to actually, you know, keep going. And then also they don't need any for, um, you know, forgiveness for trying to do that for themselves. And I think one of the things that I think is a real tragedy um, is that we've made it so much about the cost of this, how you're going to pay that back. We don't actually give those who cannot easily afford to go to college, and that's the majority of Americans now, we haven't given them the chance to actually go to college and explore what they might be interested in. We've yeah. just made it about the yep. paycheck. And it's just such so corrosive because is there any wonder why we, we are losing our arts and humanities right now? Because we've put such a massive price tag and it just keeps the arts and humanities the purview of a white, wealthy elite, period. You know, and particularly, particularly at a time when... <laughs> You know, it's, it's, it's always a student of history, right? You're going back in time and you're thinking about these, these moments in, in, in our civilization where things got incredibly dark, right? And then what comes out, right, is art, is beauty, is, is questioning, right? So that we are not consistently moving through these cycles. And it, it is not lost on me that those are the first things to go. Right. Because we yeah. don't want we the, I think that what we need to recognize as this nation is that we don't want an educated citizenry, because if you look at our K through 12 curriculum, if you look at the way that you have to buy into um, a, a, a higher education. Right. We don't want that, because if we actually wanted our citizens to be educated, then we would educate them in a way right. that functions with the now, not, you know, what was. We wouldn't still be operating on an agrarian system in our K through 12. We would have adapted like, you know, year-round school. We would have expansive curriculum that isn't, you know, electives as like STEM or electives as art. It would be baked in to our society and we would listen to those experts. But the, the reality is, is that capitalism thrives on the lack of knowledge. We need cogs in a machine in order for that to function, right? I Yes, I completely agree with you. And especially since for me, I mean, I when I some folks in the education department, the Biden education department, have actually read my book and we were talking about it. And I was like, you know, you have to think about how incredibly complex these financial products are. And one of the things that I do when I teach the US history survey, um, the first thing I do is I ask my students, hey, do you live in a union of states or a nation of people? And they all first day are like, nation of people. It's like, really? Show me, show me your, your, your ID. Oh, is it a state ID? Are you actually registered to vote in a state? Not actually as a U.S. citizen? And then I show them how I'm actually to show them how to teach this, how to teach the class is I show them a pay stub. And I was like, so tell me on first day, what are all these deductions? What is this social security thing? When did that get passed? Why did that get passed? And most in most classes, they might know it's something for, there's money for old people, but they have no idea about all the other kinds of things. So it's like, well, this is citizenship on the page. But these are if you look at that pay stub, that's just a bunch of 
taxes and financial products because on your pay stub is probably deductions from your employer if you're lucky to have it for your health care and all this other kind of stuff. And thinking about your 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 point about like robbing us of these basic rights, which for some reason are still tied to where we're working in the labor market mm-hmm. in this country, as opposed to just the fact that we are here being, con- you know, contributing the thing, is I end the class by showing them the 1099 that independent contractors get and there's no deductions. There's nothing on that for their basic rights and needs because we're so still back there that you have to work for your worth as opposed to recognizing the worth of all of us. Is it any wonder that this, again, is disproportionately leaving a lack of citizenship for those who don't have the hardest time getting good work that is steadily disappearing? What is the fix? Doctor, like, I mean, no, 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 and I and I say that knowing that the 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 problem is so complex because it was created to be right that if you yeah. were to actually pull the thread, then the whole thing would fall apart. But I think that there are some things that have been highlighted throughout you know the pandemic over the last two years, which is remote learning right? Has affected a lot of universities where people are just like, so why am I paying this high bill when I could be online and probably getting, you know, a similar edge? Like why, why am I paying for my kid or them taking out, strapping themselves with loans when you could go to state school, right? If we're not going to go back and like, there are, there are all of these things that I think were highlighted. So I just want to hear from you well, I do. So for me, the, my thought is that like, so I will say that I think the future is hybrid. And so as a historian, I'll tell you, like, you know, no one can predict the future. But what we do know is that moments of crisis tend to accelerate was already happening. There was, an ex- a, you know, a dabbling in just doing completely online. But that's a lot of the predatory for profits, but hybrid where I now actually record my lectures. And so when I'm actually in a classroom with students, I'm spending it doing much more interactive connections with them. It's a better learning environment for them. There's no reason for me to just lecture at a bunch of students. I use other kinds of hybrid technologies as well. So to actually have a more meaningful experience for what we're gonna do online and what we're gonna do when we're lucky enough to be able to come in person, it tends to have better outcomes. The second thing, though, is but actually in terms of what and I love what you brought about the state schools. State schools are also pretty unaffordable right now, too. And mm-hmm. if I again, if that now you're letting me have a fairy that is going to give me whatever I want. So first is voting rights versus voting rights, real expansive ideas about voting rights. The second is actually having um, genuinely tuition free public options all friggin four years. And I think that Mm. that's really important. And that's the College for All Act. And what that would do, and this, I I hesitate to say this because it does reach back to an American tradition of having what we call the public competitor. That's actually how we got um, um, affordable utilities, was having the Tennessee Valley Authority. It actually had this public competitor for cheap electricity. It actually had also good jobs with it, better jobs with it. And then it just created this pressure across the country to lower the rates of the utilities and literally started turning the lights on in rural communities and urban communities in the 1930s. Huge difference. But that was what was supposed to be a part of Obamacare. We were supposed to have that public option, to have that public competitor to work in there to police that. Now, obviously, in the case of healthcare, better would be to actually have health care, not health insurance. That's the other big thing I tell my students, like, have you noticed this? It's, it's actually just insurance. That's a financial product. It's actually not care. I just want you to know that. Um, but I think that having genuinely robustly funded 
um, tuition-free public options would do a lot. Now, the only thing we got with the Biden administration's agenda, their Build Back Better agenda was, and it was interesting, it was robustly funded community colleges. So you would have done your first, you had the opportunity to do your first two years for free. That's again, right. mm-hmm. a competitive pressure. It's not perfect. It's not what we should, by the way, that was an idea 75 years ago. And I was like, oh, you guys are just now trotting that back out again. <laughs> it's actually wow. one of my favorite reports. It's, it's the Zook Commission report. They're like, we're going to have, we're going to build community colleges across the country. They're going to be free. And also we're going to make them free and put them in all sorts of different communities to deal with the systemic, racial, um, religious, and gender inequality across the country. Like they, like literally presidential report. This is what we're going to do. Went nowhere. Hold your surprise. Um smaller fixes that and I I hate to say this because you're so right we don't need a band-aid talking understanding that everyone who that essential workers and so many people were shown to be essential during this pandemic they need to be a part of the debt cancellation programs called public service loan forgiveness put them in there They've proved it. Governor Gretchen Whitmore in, is, in Michigan is starting to acknowledge that these folks actually need to be um, acknowledged and genuinely rewarded for their service. And then um, another temporary fix is this big fight to get to something really meaningful, a meaningful systemic change, not just a reform, a change. The bankruptcy. Let student debt be discharged during bankruptcy. I mean, I hate to do that because it mm. feels like it's it's giving mm-hmm. into it. But if we can just give some relief now, and obviously, obviously, t- talking about some relief now, there are demands in the Democratic primaries. We had two candidates who wanted mass cancellation. Again, not forgiveness. No one did anything wrong here. Mass cancellation. It does not sound like the Biden administration is going to do that, but I want to give credit to the many people who are continuing to hammer him, both activists, both education experts, activists, education experts, but also the progressive Democrats in Congress are doing it too. just keep hammering it and keep this issue alive because it really matters. And so there's a bunch of different things trying to get to what really needs to be an overhaul about how we fund this basic public good to stop it from being a private luxury. Oh, Dr. Sherman, I could talk to you forever. Um, Me too. You know, because this, this, this issue is just so deep and it cuts through so many different things that are fundamentally wrong. Um, tell us about the conversation that you are going to be moderating, uh, towards the end of this week and how folks can, uh, connect and learn and, and learn more. It's a, it's a very exciting panel that you're, that you're going to be moderating. I'm I'm really excited about it too. So it's the University of Southern California Kasdan Institute, and we are going to show clips of of the next episode of a new documentary that is coming out. It's a six part documentary called, um, um, and we are going to show clips from that. These are the clips that in, at highlight the whistleblower, John Oberg, who was in the, um, in the Department of Education blowing the whistle on these predatory practices. But on the panel, as we talk about these issues about what to do now, what to do when the, the moratorium likely ends in May, is going to be some amazing activists, um, the founder of Student Loan Justice, um, Alan, and then another uh, incredible activist out of California, um, Kiyomi. And then we also have two education experts, um, Berkeley Law, who's been at the forefront of actually talking about the student loan law, and that's um, Jonathan. And then we have Mitchell Stevens up at Stanford about the Pathways Lab. 
I'll be on there too. And I think it's going to be a really great event. And your audience can find out more, all the details by looking at the Kazan Center. Hopefully they gave you a link that you can put in Mm -hmm. the show notes um, and we'll do that. And so that is Thursday at um, seven o'clock. I only know because of central time because I can never do the math in my head. I've lived in so many (laughs) different time zones. Seven o'clock central, which I'm 99% sure is 5 p.m., Pacific time, 8 p.m. Eastern time. Um, yes. So I really hope all of your viewers will, will will zoom into it. And where is the, so the documentary, folks, is entitled Scared to Debt, uh, yes. which I think is also a very good title, Scared to Debt. Um, where is the docuseries? I believe um, there's, oh, I go to the Scared to Debt and they'll have okay. a different, I think they're, they're yeah, in I different think, places. Where I think, I think one of the episodes is on, is, is now, is still online for sure. And it did, win okay, some, the first great. episode did win some awards for sure. Okay. Awesome. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Tandy Shermer, thank you so much for making the time to join Woke AF Daily. And I hope that you will come back to talk to us more about an issue that doesn't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon. I would love to. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Folks, I am very excited to welcome to Woke AF for the very first time Dr. John Oberg, who's a political scientist and uh, whistleblower at the Department of Education, raising the alarms uh, with regard to how different lenders were, in fact, um, gouging the Department of of Education of of funds as it pertains to student debt and payback uh, of those loans. John, thank you so much for making the time to join Woke AF, um, I, I will say that this is an issue that I think is not covered enough. And I think that when we talk about the student debt crisis, we oftentimes are not putting a human face to it and we're not walking through all of the ways in which 40, over 45 million Americans in this country are affected by this debt. So I, I want to open up with asking you, um, What made you make the decision to blow the whistle at the Department of Education? What was occurring at that time? Uh, Yes, happy to answer that question. Before I do, let me say I agree with you entirely that more focus needs to be on a lot of these issues surrounding student loan debt and the amazing amount that has been accumulated. Uh, Too few people have asked how did this happen? Mm-hmm. Really? Wh- what was behind it? How could we wind up with this situation, uh, which have been, has been called a national catastrophe in a, in a wonderful book by Josh Mitchell and a wonderful book by Dr. Shermer uh, calling it uh, Indentured Students. To answer your question about that, about why I decided to become a whistleblower, Mm-hmm. Uh, I was I was an employee in the Department of Education's research office. I had previously been in the Office of Legislation and Congressional Affairs, and I had handled a lot of the legislation between the uh, department and the Congress as a liaison person. So I was very familiar with the statutes and the laws and so on. I was curious in 2000, starting in, in 2000, uh, three, as to what happened with one particular issue that I had been so involved in legislatively, and that was trying to phase out 
an excessive subsidy that existed for lenders going all the way back to 1980. And uh, the agreement that we reached with the Congress in the 1998 reauthorization of the Higher Education Act said, oh, that will be phased out. It'll be gone soon because all those old loans will have been paid off. To my amazement, when I started to check it, uh, I found that the amount was growing and that mm. essentially lenders were claiming uh, from taxpayers uh, astounding amounts, which I started to project would be in the billions of dollars. And this, I thought, was uh, inappropriate. It was actually fraudulent. I brought it to the attention of the department. I was told, no, you're not supposed to look into that. That's not something that we want any attention to. Um, I, br I brought the uh, situation to the attention of the inspector general. I went to my office, office of ethics at the department and said, may I do analysis on my own if the department won't let me do it and bring the, my work to the attention of the general accounting office, the government accountability office is called now. And, um, and so, uh, Congress soon got involved and cut off part of the part part of the excess subsidies. So we capped it at probably close to a billion dollars. Um, and uh, I retired from the Department of Education. But then Margaret Spellings, the secretary, said, oh, yes, that was illegal, but we're not going to ask for any of the money back. Why? And at that time, I said, no, I'm in a position then under the law. Uh, in order to file uh, a suit, a so-called key TAM, that is a, a whistleblower suit against, on behalf of the United States, uh, in order to recover the funds. I spent then 11 years trying to recover the funds, and we had quite a bit of success uh, against several of the lenders. Why, were, why was the response from the secretary that they were not going to try and get funds that were rightly theirs back. Why, why would the reaction be, just leave it alone? Well, the answer lies in the fact that the department was complicit. Many people in the department had come out of the lenders and they wanted the money. Uh, they initially were complicit in setting up the false claims. And uh, they were still uh, very much in in power uh, when, the, when the time came to ask for the money back. Uh, some of the lenders actually thought they, would, they were go going to have to pay the money back because they didn't think it was legal in the first place and had actually escrowed funds to do so. But uh, Secretary Spellings did not uh, ask. And I think that is part of, the, part, of the, part of the question is, how did this happen? Is to look at who was in the department at the time, who was calling the shots, who was making the decisions. We have, of course, from discovery in my lawsuit, uh, many documents that uh, show the emails, uh, both uh, in, internally in the, in, in the lenders who are making these false claims and between them as to um, how, how they were doing it, uh, uh, why they were doing it. And then, we, of, course, of course, we also have uh, considerable evidence uh, after this became public, about how these funds were then turned into 
uh, loans that should never have been made to students in order to burden. Um, uh, we have uh, attorneys, uh, attorney general uh, report in Iowa in 2008. Mm-hmm. We have an auditor general in Pennsylvania in, in, in 2007 who said the lender there had lost sight of its mission. We have uh, cases in Kentucky. We have all over the country. And it's important, I think, to be able somehow to draw a straight line from these illegal claims and so on to the current crisis that we have in the country. So essentially, the loss that the Department of Education, and I I put that in quotations, the loss meaning the money that the lenders then took, they decided to create new loans to essentially put place that burden of recouping of those lost funds on potential students. Am, am I hearing that right? Yes, they used they used the excess funds. For example, uh, in Iowa, um, there <clears throat> they had claimed approximately um, fifty eight million illegally. Um, that was determined to. To have been an illegal claim, and then along comes the uh, the uh, attorney general of Iowa a few years later, and is able to say, "Look at what Iowa student loan has been doing. It has been uh, loading Iowa students up with debt that they really shouldn't have," and that's uh, that's an important that's an important line to draw. I think between the illegal, the complicity of the Department of Education in allowing the lenders to do this, not getting the money back, the money then being used inappropriately in order to increase the debt burden of of the borrowers. So, John, here we are, um, where we have an administration that campaigned on essentially relieving this debt for over 45 million Americans, Uh, 1.8, I believe, $1.8 trillion uh, in debt is held by over 45 million Americans. And, you know, we are watching, uh, because of the COVID-19 crisis, uh, some pause that is happening in payback, but isn't that essentially just kicking the can down the road what do you see this administration doing or uh, that is going to tackle this outsized crisis? Well, that's a terribly good question. And a lot of people are, are, are pondering exactly what should happen. Um, and you framed it, you framed it correctly. Uh, these pauses um, are kicking the can down the road. They are, however, very valuable because a lot of people are just not in the position right now to resume repayment. And it, I think it would be unconscionable to try to force them into repayment. And at least the Biden administration twice, I believe, has, has delayed that. Uh, as to what else they are going to do, let me give some, some credit, and mm-hmm. I hope it's a harbinger mm-hmm. of what they're going to do because they have done some good things. They have come in and straightened out uh, some of the messes that were left um, from decades past, not just the previous administration, but many, many previous problems. 
the so-called borrower defense uh, issue. They did a good, pretty good job on that, on, on um, permanent disability students and so on, and veterans and so on. They came in and straightened that out and aggressively tried to get uh, cancellation for those um, totally and permanently disabled that uh, had a legal right to loan cancellation. The Biden administration came in and looked at the public service loan forgiveness program, uh, which had been run into the ground totally by a lender and servicer that was uh, one of the defendants in my lawsuit. So I knew all about it. They should never have gotten the contract. Um, But the Biden administration came in and used authority under the so-called HEROES Act going back to uh, almost two decades in order to straighten that out. So uh, those are indicators that this administration um, can uh, do the right thing. The big question now is, um, what is the appropriate response to the to the whole to the whole shebang? The mm-hmm, big picture, mm-hmm. one point eight trillion. Mm-hmm. They did pretty well on these others, and I would like to see them. Um, be aggressive in addressing this. I have been among those who uh, has looked at the secretary's authority uh, in order to address uh, some some very significant broad cancellation. It's called the compromise and settlement provision um, of the law. And I have seen it used. I've been in the room when it has been used over the decades. I know the history of that particular one. And I have a broad interpretation of that. There is a an attorney, a, 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 a general counsel office. The general counsel has given a, an opinion to the secretary and to the White House uh, about the powers of the secretary to to cancel loans, short of anything else from Congress. Uh, however, that has been redacted, so the public doesn't know what's in there. Um, I think that's probably what is in there is, is the secretary has a lot of authority. The one thing that no one seems to be talking about very much, if at all, and why I'm eager to discuss it with you is, I think not only does the secretary have the power under this provision, but the secretary has an obligation to act in order to square things up with many borrowers who have been misled through no fault of their own because of the complicity of the Department of Education itself mm-hmm. in driving up this debt. A lot of borrowers are in trouble. They are in default. They're behind on their payments. They. It's astounding to people when they learn that many borrowers have actually paid off principal and interest and more but they still have a huge debt in front of them. Why is that? Well, there are fees and there are penalties and there's accrued interest and there's capitalized interest and there's this and there's that. And many of the borrowers never had the chance to say, I didn't sign up for that. The The servicer has led me astray with bad information as to what my choices were as to how to get out of default, as to how to get out of trouble if I lost my job. Uh, 
it, the, there's and there's plenty of evidence to show that the servicing has been terrible. I believe the secretary has an obligation because of the complicity of the department and the lack of supervision of of the of the servicers to take some bold action under the compromise and settlement provision of the law. What would it look like? Can you can you paint a picture for us, John? What would it look like if the secretary believing that they have the authority, if they were to wipe out, right, as people are saying, wipe out the $1.8 trillion worth of debt. What does that look like? What happens? What happens to the lenders? What happens to the department? What happens to those with the loans? Well, there are several proposals out there. And as I say, I'm in favor of of doing something bolder rather than weaker on this. There is, of course, the idea of just canceling it all. Mm -hmm. There is the idea that's been advanced by several people of uh, doing 50,000. There is the idea of doing 10,000. That was advanced as a campaign uh, uh, issue by by President Biden himself. There Many of these have run into some criticism because of equity issues or this is a wrong uh, approach. There ought to be another one. And I'm not familiar with all of them, but there have been some rather inventive uh, alternatives uh, that have been discussed, one of which uh, has intrigued me. Uh, Some think tank has come up with the idea of a retroactive Pell Grant. If Pell Grants had been what they were supposed to and had been applied to a student's loan package in the first place, they wouldn't have had to borrow so much. And if you were to go back in and apply the Pell eligibility uh, to the outstanding debt now, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't have the numbers, but I think that would uh, that would be a targeted approach. People couldn't criticize the approach on that. And it might do an awful lot for a lot of borrowers who are struggling because they were low income in the first place. Right. Another thing that I have thrown out, and some people have said, well, yes, that's a good idea, uh, would be to, um, to, for everybody who is still in debt, who has paid principal plus the government's cost of money, cancel those debts. That would, I don't know exactly how many people would be affected by that, but it would be a very significant number. And it would also help the department right now because you have two of these servicers who are going out of business simply because they are so fraught with problems that they no longer can can comply with the government requirements on it. And and millions of accounts have to be moved from those servicers to other servicers. Unfortunately, there is not a long line, a long uh, uh, other servicers who may be doing, uh, who may be able to do a good job on that. And so it's quite, it's quite a, a logistical undertaking. If a lot of loans could be canceled right now, so they didn't have to be transferred, that would be in the interest of everybody. Mm-hmm. That would be in the interest of taxpayers, of the Department of Education, of the borrowers, of of the servicers who might be overwhelmed. So that's another kind of an alternative. I I don't have all the alternatives at at my disposal. All I can say is I believe 
it's an obligation of the Secretary of Education to take bold action in order to address the crisis. Um, John, you know, it, what, what troubles me, too, is the constant conversation that we have in this country, right, about the shrinking middle class, about low-income uh, folks, about those that we deemed, you know, in 2020 as essential workers, right, and then others that were able to stay within the confines of their homes uh, and, and, and work, right? And what I what I look at this debt crisis, I think of the ways that people are locked into jobs and careers that they don't want. How how do you think just for the just for the sheer ability to be able to offer a couple of hundred dollars a month to pay off this debt that was supposed to give them greater opportunity and privilege, right? In our in, in our society. How do you think that this debt, like this, this shackle really does go to affect our society and affect our economy? I know that you're not an economist, but like, I, I do want your thoughts on that. Well, I think uh, uh, some good demographic analyses would shed a lot of light on the situation you just described. Uh, yes, uh, a lot of people have been uh, shackled to jobs they don't really want because of student loan debt. Um, uh, some of those might be the lucky ones. Uh, some, some people have uh, actually been burdened with debt without any uh, college completion and credential it, that helped them get a job to start with. And so they may be in dire trouble um, we also should look at the demographics of this as to who who really makes up this one point eight trillion dollars mm-hmm. and is there uh I did analysis back in two thousand three and published a working paper that showed um that we were really disadvantaging in the way we put student loan packages together the low income and particularly the black low income. So uh, I think that a lot of work has to be done. And I would hope that that work is being done right now to look at all the categories uh, of people who are in trouble, to look at the obligation of the secretary to address them, because a lot of this has been known for a long time and there should be numbers on them and, and somehow tailor the response uh, to those demographics. Yeah. You know, John, I I just want to say, and I'm certain that you've probably received this so many times over, but thank you so much um, for your outspokenness, right? To uh, to offer the truth at a time when that is is something that is waning, uh, to say that people are being squeezed out of the very little that they have, and what are we doing about that? Why are we? Why is the department being complicit in that? And then, out of one instance, talking about creating a robust middle class uh, when they are actually complicit in the ways in which people stay trapped uh, in a low income and in poverty. Uh, because of debt. So I, I really appreciate the the work that you continue to do on this crisis. Can you um, offer folks, you're going to be on a panel uh, with our guest that we also had on, Dr. Shermer, 
that is going to be looking at uh, the documentary "Scared to Debt." Uh, that is that is happening um, 5 p.m. What is it? 5 p.m. Pacific time. Can you tell us a little bit more about this panel and wh- and why it's important? Yes, uh, I'm eager to be on this panel because I'm a big admirer of Professor Shermer's book about uh, student loans and how we got into trouble on this. Uh, uh, we're going to have a a, a panel that looks at Mike Camoin's film, Scared to Debt, first. And I believe this is the second uh, installment, the mm-hmm. second chapter of his film. We saw the first part of it, uh, and now we're going to see the second part of it. And if I understand correctly, uh, it is entitled The Whistleblower, and it focuses on me. <laughs> Good. Uh, so, nice. So I will be interested <laughs> in seeing what it says. But then we will have a panel. Uh, moderated by Professor Shermer, and it has some uh, other other people on it. I'm very eager to hear their views. I will, of course, say some of the same things um, that I have just shared with you, mm-hmm. that I believe the department uh, is complicit. I believe the secretary has an obligation under the law. It doesn't make just good economic sense, but I think there is an obligation there to, um, to act. And I would say also that, yes, uh, some people have commended me, but uh, you also have to understand that from my standpoint, I was I was a federal civil servant. I was under oath in order to execute the laws of the United States properly. I didn't see that I had any option, Mm. especially since I was the one who uncovered the manipulations of loans loans among bond estates and no one else had standing to do it and so if i hadn't stepped up <laughs> i don't know how i would have lived with myself i it was an it was simply an obligation i had and i think that's the way a lot of people who are whistleblowers uh feel about their actions they were just doing their job well, I appreciate it because too few people actually do their job and uh, looking out for other people other than themselves. So we appreciate that. Thank you so much for taking the time to join Woke AF Daily today. Appreciate you and good luck on the panel. Okay. Thank you. Anytime. <laughs> That is it for me today on Woke AF Daily. As always, power to the people and to all the people power. Get woke and stay woke as fuck. Your getaway with Apple Vacations begins the moment you step on board one of our exclusive nonstop vacation flights. Escape the ordinary with packages starting at just $599. No layovers, just pure relaxation from takeoff to touchdown. Immerse yourself in the joy of travel with Apple Vacations. Your journey is as enchanting as the destination, so pack your bags and leave the rest to us. Visit AppleVacations.com or call your local travel advisor to book your vacation. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? 
M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, Peanut Butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of Peanut Butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Introducing the Lisa Chill Collection, your answer to hot nights. These mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers, whisking away heat for the perfect sleep temperature. Save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows when you shop now. iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.